This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I'm, I'm proud to note that uh, in the last hour or two, I've updated our website so it looks a little cleaner and more up to date. Although, frankly, it still could use a little sprucing up, much like Edward McMillan, who himself has been sprucing up lately. Yay! And it's about time. And quite frankly, I, I could use a little myself. It's possible to get just, just a bit disheveled after you've been flying around to Dubai and Mauritius and Africa and Istanbul. Some of my traveling companions have forwarded some excellent pictures, which we probably won't post, frankly, but maybe one or two. Maybe one or two. In fact, actually, we're going to have to post a couple of them on the website because they're just some remarkable uh, moments from, from travel. And I do want to talk in, in this show and probably in, you know, uh, over the weeks to come about some of the little incidents that took place while traveling. And I think I probably should start with the, the moment which I thought was the single funniest moment in the month of August. This involved a surprising plot twist from one of my traveling companions. Here's the setup. We're in South Africa in the last stage of the tour of the Southern African states. We started in Johannesburg, flew north to the nation of Zambia, which shares Victoria Falls with Zimbabwe, drove around the bottom of Zambia into the nation of Botswana and enjoyed fantastic wildlife spectacle of elephants and hippos, Cape Buffalo, crocodiles, the occasional lion, before returning to Cape Town. This tour wasn't all about wildlife. We did a lot of cultural things uh, interspersed, like visiting the wine country, the famous South African wine country in Stellenbosch, taking a trip out to the Cape of Good Hope, and in one memorable interlude, getting educated about the section of North Cape Town that had been um, home to the indentured servants that had been brought over and formed the basis of what was called the colored population in South Africa. The people there being a mixture of people from Malaysia slash India, along with the black population of Africa and with some Europeans thrown in. Because of the large Indian and, and Malay component uh, to this portion of the city, we were educated about the folks that had lived there and were given a lesson on how to cook what was described as Islamic food. We later went on to look at a spice market and get educated about some of the things that go into this type of cooking. But at one point, as we were being given the how-to lesson in making the samosas and other dishes that were pre-prepared for us, kind of like one of those cooking shows where, where they, they mix one thing, but they've already got something in the oven because you're not going to wait 15 minutes for it to bake, etc., and they pull that out. They had that kind of arrangement going. At one point, they were showing us how to make a certain dish. I, I think it was chicken. I don't know. I wasn't paying very good attention at that point, frankly. I, I'm not a chef. Oh, I'll, I'll eat the food with gusto. I just, I just don't want to spend time in the kitchen. But for the benefit of those who might wish to employ these skills, and there were many in the group, they were painstakingly showing us how to mix the various ingredients. At one point, they pulled out a tray with various ingredients on the, on the tray to which to add to the, the dish being constructed. And it was, um, I guess you'd call it like a tali-type arrangement you find in Indian restaurants, various little things that you can add. Now, I should note that we had two Indian couples 
with us on the tour. Very nice folks, both electrical engineers, Mike being the most vocal of the quartet. Now, at one point as our hostess was showing how it was you would reach over to this tray of ingredients and start adding them in, Mike edged his way toward the, the front of the, the crush as the chef added the ingredient, at which point he spoke up to say, and then you say, and by the time those words got out of his mouth, I was assuming he was going to, you know, express some Indian blessing to the meal. But in fact, what he said was, and then you say, kawabunga. And yes, at this point, yours truly, having been taken in by this misdirection play of a surfer dude expression inserted into this Islamic meal. Well, I was non-functional for about a minute or so. I wasn't able to resist hitting the floor. <laughs> I doubled over with laughter. But that was about the best I could do. Anyway, I'm pretty sure I'll never hear the phrase kawabunga again and not think of that moment. And I suppose I, I should also add that um, the next day when we went down to visit the, the Cape of Good Hope, and our guide, Sean, himself a, quote, colored, unquote, from Cape Town, told the story about how it was that the Portuguese had been working their way down the African coast with the idea of getting to India, a, a successful strategy, ultimately, in, in 1498. Of course, the more familiar date of 1492 tells the story of how Columbus, in his ignorance, thought that he could sail west to get to India and instead discovered the Bahamas. That's a story we've told before and need to tell again, but, but, but I digress. We're down at the Cape of Good Hope, which, which was originally called the Cape of Storms, because I guess when Bartholomew Diaz discovered it, it was pretty darn stormy and nasty and somewhat discouraging. Anyway, the king hearing that perspective name says, oh, we're not calling it that, we're going to call it the Cape of Good Hope. At any rate, the strategy of sailing from Portugal around the west of, coast of Africa down to the south of Africa, turning left and sailing to India, as we all know, did work. In fact, we did a show on this some years back. We spoke with author Nigel Cliff about his book, The Last Crusade, The Epic Voyages of Vasco da Gama, and, and the story of what turned out to be quite a bit of brutality once the connection was made to trading posts in India, prompted me to turn to my Indian couple companions at the Cape of Good Hope and personally apologize for Vasco da Gama. They seemed to think that was pretty funny, prompting Mike to say, well, if it hadn't been for Vasco, we probably wouldn't be speaking English right now. And I suppose that, that could be true, although I'm a little bit vague in the details of how it was the Portuguese opening up the West so that the British, as they were so fond of doing, could come in and take over the joint. But I'm sure there's a story there that uh, I could stand to learn about. Oh, by the way, we should mention the passing of the longest reigning British monarch in history. I think she got perilously close to being the longest reigning monarch in history. And that, of course, is Queen Elizabeth II, who for my entire lifetime, and I dare say the entire lifetime of almost everybody listening, has been the only British monarch we know, has finally been supplanted by her son to be known as Charles III. We certainly hope it works out better for Charles than it did for Charles I who wound up being deposed, accused of uh, treason, and uh, beheaded by the Puritans, led by Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, we're pretty sure that uh, Charles III, or, or as we like to refer to him, Chucky, will do better. 
Now, it's funny, you have a hard time remembering details. Even even some details from my recent trip to Africa are getting a little fuzzy right now. I need to refresh them. But when you go back decades, things really do get hazy. I, I think, I think that in 1988, while in Australia, I saw the Queen sitting up on a balcony. I know she was there for Australia's what they called bicentenary. And I know she was nearby, but in, I have a distinct memory of looking up and seeing the Queen sitting up on a balcony. But I do need to put a, a call in to my friend Jim McCaslin, who I, whom I went to high school with, who was there with me, to see if he has the same memory, because if he doesn't, then it's going to get a little suspect. Speaking of high school, I would like to welcome uh, some of the people I did attend school with some years back. A uh, mini reunion of sorts was held in my backyard last week, and I, I think a good time was had by all. I certainly hope so. Some curious tales did emerge from uh, that event that I hope will play out in future installments of this radio program. The classmate I've known the longest, since kindergarten in fact, one Jim Keller, had a tale to tell of the Mondavi family that it was quite fascinating and I think needs to be shared with this radio audience. But let me stop my meandering here and see if we can get just a, a tad more focused. Starting with a meme posted on Facebook by a former Radio Parallax guest, Mr. Mike Bana. If you never heard what Mike Bana had to say, that's spelled B-H-A-N-A, we would refer you to our website, radioparallax.com. Mike is a documentary filmmaker who um, did work for National Geographic and others. Lives in New Zealand, quite a guy. And I really feel the need to thank him for the meme that he posted a few days back, which was a picture of the legendary David Attenborough, accompanied by a quote from Attenborough, which I think is just all time. Said he, anyone who believes in indefinite growth on a physically finite planet is either mad or an economist. To which I I would add, well, what's the difference? Well, Mr. Mann points out that you can be mad and not an economist, and that's true. I'm just not quite sure it works the other way. This is something that often comes up when we read The Economist and, and other publications of uh, people of that mindset. Seems to me when it comes to environmental issues, they just aren't thinking clearly. A lot of them seem to have this Elon Musk view of the world that God, we're underpopulated. We need more people. I mean, it's working out well so far to have... 8 billion people on planet Earth. Why don't we add a couple billion more? All right, let's see if we can lighten, lighten the mood here a little bit with uh, a collection we have made of the good, the bad, and the ugly. We generally rely upon the Week magazine selections for these, and we have quite a backlog. So let's, let's jump into a few. Now, I'm not sure exactly what week some of these items are. Let's just say in the last month or so, it was a good week for chutzpah. Well, that's what I think I'd label it. The story is that a Missouri pastor berated his, quote, cheap, unquote, congregation for not buying him an expensive watch and, quote, taking care of God's shepherd, unquote. Apparently, Pastor Carlton Funderburk, and I guess that's his real name, Funderburk of Kansas City, complained that he'd asked a year ago for a Movado watch, which, of course, ranges up to $3,300, and still hasn't received it. He asked his churchgoers, I'm not worth your red lobster money? He then called them poor, broke, busted, and disgusted. After a video of this tirade spread online, 
Funderburk apologized, saying, it does not reflect my heart. And we'd have to call it a bad week for chutzpah recently when a pair of Australian, Australian tourists surfed Venice's iconic Grand Canal on motorized surfboards. They apparently drew $1,500 fines and the wrath of the city's mayor. The thrill-seekers are two overbearing imbeciles who are making a mockery of the city, said Mayor Luigi Brunardo. The young men were caught after videos emerged of the pair shooting under arch bridges and dodging water buses on the tourist-thronged waterway, which is Venice's main thoroughfare. Well, all we can say to that is, well, she'll be right. And, in fact, it would be entirely appropriate to add Kawabunga. And speaking of things Italian, as I guess we just were, it was an ugly week, we'd have to say, for chutzpah. With this story, Italian artist Maurizio Catalan made a splash back in 2019 when he duct-taped a banana to a wall as part of a Miami gallery exhibit and, and sold three versions of the work for $390,000. Mr. Millen, I hope you're taking notes on this. I am. But wouldn't you know it, He's now being sued by a California artist, Joe Morford, who says Catalan stole his idea. I did this in 2000, he wrote, adding somewhat ungrammatically, plagiarism much? As proof of his concept, he included a photo of his own work, which we do want to point out used a plastic banana instead of Catalan's real banana. You will no doubt take note of the fact that a federal judge has ruled that Morford's suit may proceed even if duct-taping a banana to a wall, quote, may not espouse the highest degree of creativity, unquote. Yes, folks, this is America. You can sue anybody for anything. All right, that's three items we put under the category of chutzpah. Here's three more we would put under the category of tech. We would say that I, I guess it's a good week for tech with the news that a Detroit tech worker... He's never going to have to worry about losing his, the keys to his Tesla. He implanted a chip in his right hand that opens and starts his vehicle. Brandon Delali spent $400 at a piercing parlor to install the prototype chip, which he coded himself. And he already has a chip in his left hand that opens his house doors. I thought, how cool would it be if I could leave my house with no car key and no house key, said he. Well, we suppose here at Radio Parallax that is one solution, but uh, what, do you, what do you do when you get a new house or car? Go back to the piercing parlor and say, can you cut this out? If you're thinking about doing this, please consult your physician. Anyway, we'd have to say it was a bad week for tech some recent week when it turns out that a celebrated French physicist caused an online furor by tweeting a purported image of a distant star taken by the James Webb Space Telescope. In reality, it depicted an illuminated slice of chorizo. Apparently, Etienne Klein praised the, quote, level of detail, unquote, in the star photo to his more than 1,000 followers. But after thousands of comments and retweets, he admitted a deception and pointedly warned that sometimes images that seem to speak for themselves are fake. Klein added that according to contemporary cosmology, No object related to Spanish meat snacks exists anywhere else other than the Earth. Well, we'd have to agree with this French physicist on that particular issue, but we do want to talk a little bit more about the 
Vera C. Rubin Observatory, set to open in July 2023 in Chile, which according to New Scientist magazine, has astronomers getting ready for an onslaught of weird discoveries. Although we're not sure any of those discoveries will include chorizo. This reminds me of a funny headline that was in the Journal of Irreproducible Results several decades back. Radio astronomers kept detecting new molecules out in various gases in space, which prompted the journal to have a headline <laughs> that said, Newest Molecule Discovered in Space Gas, Mescaline, eh, which maybe isn't as funny as I remember it. But finally, it was an ugly week for what we'd call technology some weeks back with this item. A Brazilian man landed in the emergency room after attempting to give himself a surgical nose job with the aid of YouTube tutorials. The Sao Paulo man, who told doctors he got the idea for a self-rhinoplasty by watching videos, used rubbing alcohol to disinfect his nose, anesthetic to numb the pain, and thread and superglue to close the wound. The Brazilian Society of Plastic Surgery (laughs) issued a warning that rhinoplasty is an exclusively medical art, that requires specialization and qualifications to perform. Now, you'd think you wouldn't have to make a statement like that. But then you wouldn't imagine people would watch YouTube videos and think, hey, I can do that. How hard could it be? Speaking of crazy developments that come out of uh, the internet and high tech, which we were, uh, I'm struck by the fact that I'd set aside before In fact, I'm shocked to realize I set this aside back in February of 2021. An article about the documentary Fake Famous, which spotlights the darker side of how, quote, influencers, unquote, get made. I happened to catch this documentary while flying, uh, I I guess it was between South Africa and Europe. Unfortunately, I started a little bit late and didn't watch the ending, so I had had to pull it up once I got home and watch the thing from the beginning to end. And have to say it summarizes so much of what is wrong with our social media-driven world and internet-driven world and big tech-driven world. To quote from the article, which I said as I long... I, 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 it's funny. I watched this video not knowing that I'd read a little bit about it the previous year. But to quote from the piece by Brian Lowry in CNN... Fake Famous offers a novel window into the world of influencers conducting an experiment to see if three young wannabes can be transformed into marketing dynamos. While their tales don't unfold entirely as planned, the HBO document exposes how ripe for manipulation this whole culture is and the powerful incentives to game the system. Written, produced, and directed by journalist Nick Bilton, Fake Famous charts the evolving currency surrounding fame, which once rewarded those renowned for a skill, think actors and athletes, before reality TV stars became famous for being famous. And finally, social media quote-unquote stars were celebrated simply for a number, that is, their collection of followers. Bilton began by interviewing candidates, mostly aspiring actors and models, choosing three to travel the road to fame. The tricks of the trade, including buying followers, $7,500 for the cool price of $119, renting a mansion to stage glamorous photo shoots and style makeovers in order to look like the cool kids. 
If that all sounds a bit cynical, that's really the whole point, given the fraud and fakery built into the, quote, follower, unquote, model. Their totals regularly get padded by bots, Bilton explains, making people appear more popular than they really are. The piece notes that the way people bend this formula to their advantage is an inevitable byproduct of social media, where, as cultural critic Baron Todd Thurston puts it, we're all making our own movies and we're all trying to be the star. Influencers can elevate these vaguely narcissistic impulses to a different level. Despite the often misleading nature of the images, Bilton points out, it's in no one's best interest, certainly not those reaping the benefits, including the companies involved, to acknowledge how much of that is manufactured and fabricated. The main takeaways aren't just the deception baked into the whole process, but the consumerism at its core designed not to make people feel better, Bilton suggests, but rather to make you feel worse about what you don't have. What was amazing in watching this documentary is how they showed this wannabe influencer interacting with other people who were being established as supposed real influencers. But it seemed pretty apparent that everybody was playing the same game. For example, to post a picture of yourself on somebody's private jet, flying from here to there, living that jet-set lifestyle that is so attractive to others who would like to be famous themselves, well, to, to manufacture such images, there's a little studio where you can rent a fake aircraft interior and then do your photo shoot there to pretend you're actually on a private jet. It seemed to me in watching the documentary that all of these alleged influencers were playing the same game, manufacturing something from nothing. But in the case of one of the three wannabes, it appears that she was faking it till she was making it. Apparently the whole project got a bit derailed when COVID struck in 2021. Of course, the documentary showed how even though they were several months into a pandemic where nobody was traveling, influencers were posting pictures of themselves jet-setting all over the world and having a great time in all these places that really were quite devoid of tourists. Anyway, Mr. McMillan? It's the Barnum and Bailey world, just as funny as it can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me. Anyway, there's a lot more we could say about this. There was an article in New Scientist in June of this year about uh, being virtually famous, showing how computer-generated influencers are... Uh, acting like real humans and having an effect on people that follow them, which is just making this, all this so much worse. But um, we're not going to do that today. I mean, shades of Max Headroom. This might be a good point to toss in a meme that I ran into a couple days ago, sent by a high school friend who came to the gathering in the backyard who spends a lot of time digging up funny memes. I told Doria, some of them make it into Radio Parallax. It's not all time wasted. Thanks for helping. I think she set this one around, which says, think about it. Every single corpse on Mount Everest was once a highly motivated person. Stay lazy, my friends. But we're not going to stay lazy and, in fact, probe something that is sort of a shocker. Maybe something from the law of unintended consequences. Maybe. But I don't know whether you noticed, dear listener, over at CNN... They fired Brian Selter. He was the host of Reliable Sources for nine years. He was a longtime media critic, especially a critic of Fox News. After the election of Donald Trump, Brian Stelter had focused 
withering coverage on Fox News and its unholy propaganda alliance with the former liar-in-chief. In this, I'm quoting Eric Wemple from the Washington Post. In his final show, Stelter said, it's not partisan to stand up to demagogues. But following the merger last April between CNN's owner, Warner Media, and Discovery, new CNN CEO Chris Licht and Warner Brothers billionaire investor John Malone made it clear they'd hoped to lure back viewers alienated by the network's critical coverage of Trump. And it's not a coincidence that since Trump left office, ratings of all the cable networks have been in decline. Chris Malone in The New Yorker notes that CNN executives have decided to refocus on, quote, unbiased, unquote, coverage of breaking news. The polarizing stelter they decided endangered their ability to appeal to a wider audience. Writing about this in The Bulwark, Jonathan Last said, I have bad news for CNN's new leadership. No matter what the network does, critics on the right and at Fox will continue to label CNN as hopelessly biased. That was true even when CNN, after Trump's election, went on a spree of, quote, both sides, unquote, political coverage and, quote, affirmative action conservative hires, unquote, such as former Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski and Jason Miller, who spouted pure propaganda. Trump and Fox have trained conservatives to dismiss any legitimate news that threatens their beliefs. There's nothing you can do to appease bad faith critics. Back in 2020, Brian Stelter wrote a book titled Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. But uh, in the wake of CNN's ratings plummeting post-Trump, the new CEO, Chris Licht, reportedly planned to slash costs and focus on breaking news stories rather than political commentary. And again, we would agree with Jonathan Last that this is not going to appease anybody on the far right. John Cooper, writing for Occupy Democrats, said the new head of CNN had hoped that shifting it to the right would allow them to pick up Fox viewers. Instead, CNN is simply losing viewers to MSNBC. This will go down as one of the worst decisions in cable television history. And yeah, the idea that you're being more unbiased if you're giving more credence to the kind of lies being manufactured by the Trump camp is, uh, well, that's a scary concept. And we've got something even scarier up our sleeve, but we're going to have to, uh, to talk about that after a short break. Before we do that, we'll make note of one small item about someone who decided to stand up for what he thought was right, even if it took forever. The item is that an Indian lawyer has won a 22-year legal battle with Indian Railways for overcharging him by 20 rupees, which works out to about 25 cents. Apparently, Chungnath Chaturvedi, age 66, made several appeals and attended 100 hearings after filing a complaint for being charged 90 rupees instead of 70 for a ticket he bought from Uttar Pradesh to Morabad. This month, he won a judgment of 15,000 rupees, which is about $188. It hardly makes up for the energy and time I've lost fighting this case, Chaturvedi said, but it's not the money that matters. This was always about a fight for justice. All right, then. Let's take a break. 
This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.